welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Hannah Fern. As a journalist and commentator, I've been covering housing for almost two decades, but it's only in the last couple of years that everyone else wants to actually talk to me about it too. With rents soaring and homeowners facing a spike in their mortgage repayments, housing costs are set to become an election-winning or losing issue. And central to all this is property prices. And with the prospect of a crash on the horizon, we wondered, would that actually be a good thing all round? And who would be the winners and losers in such an event? Joining me to discuss this is Pete Apps. He's the deputy editor of Inside Housing magazine and a friend of the podcast. Hi, Pete. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for the invite. Well, first of all, let me say huge congratulations. You won the Orwell Prize uh, last week for your book, Show Me the Bodies, which looked into the years of failure that led up to the tragedy of, of Grenfell. That's just a brilliant thing. Well done. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So um, been a lot of years of my life gone into sort of that book and the surrounding story. So it was, yeah, it was good to get get some recognition. Such an important one to tell. And I think, you know, from someone who's covered housing for so long, just to see that recognition of such it's being such an important subject um, was, was really great. So let's have a think about the issue that we're all focused on now. What is actually happening with house prices today? They are starting to fall. The market, I think, is slowly reacting to the changes to interest rates, because obviously, as the cost of servicing a mortgage rises, the amount that people can afford to pay for a house decreases. So that's changing demand, whether buyers kind of want to go out into the market now, or whether they want to keep their powder dry and and hope that by some miracle, we might see rates fall, and therefore they get a better deal later on. So they're not plummeting, but they are sort of on a downward trend, which is something we haven't really seen much of for about 15 years. Is it a bit slower than some people are predicting? Because there's been a lot of discussion about a crash. But as you say, it seems to be more of a taper, doesn't it? It does. I mean, you know, you you said in your intro that you've been writing about housing for a long time. A housing market crash is pretty much always... Somebody somewhere is always predicting a house market crash. (laughs) I think the fact is in the UK, there's so much demand and there is such a big shortage of houses that we've been resilient to, to, to that happening because there are always people out there trying trying to get on the property ladder and trying to, to house themselves and their families. And that means that there's this kind of base level demand, even where the market suggests, <laughs> everything suggests that house prices should be crashing. The other side to that is you wouldn't go from steadily rising house prices for years and quite rapidly rising house prices for years to a crash overnight. It would start in, in sort of dribs and drabs with the market softening and then people becoming less and less confident and gradually that leads on to 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 a, a much sharper fall. It's, it's interesting that one of the reasons there's always so much hype about is a house price crash coming is partly because so much is bound up in it, isn't it? You know, it's so hard to get on the ladder, but also for those who are on it, it's just the main asset that people have. There's so much tied up into it. What would it mean for most owners right now if we did see a significant decline compared to what we've seen, which is just years of of, of slow and faster rising? Well, I think it depends on the owner and their circumstances, really. I mean, for people who are kind of settled in, in a house, don't mind staying there for a long period of time and can carry on servicing the mortgage even as rates rise, it's just a case of wait it out, really. I mean, like your property, you paid something for the property, the price falls, you would expect over time that it recovers. And so, so long as you just live in the house rather than sell it during that time, you don't even notice. I think the problem is if your circumstances demand that you have to move house or if house price crashes are always kind of bound up in recessions and during recessions, people lose jobs, they get 
their pay cut, they find it harder to make a living. And that means maybe they can't pay their mortgage, especially with the mortgage getting more expensive. And so then if you're in a position where you default on your mortgage and your property needs to be sold to pay it off, but it's below the value of what you originally paid for it, you're in negative equity. And that's an awful scenario where people, you know, can can face a sort of personal economic crisis that can define the rest of their lives. It's an awful scenario, even if you're not looking to move, isn't it? Because it's just that sense of being trapped. Yeah. Even for people who don't necessarily want to move, there's a difference between not wanting to move and not being able to move. Anyone's life can change suddenly. You know, an older parent gets sick and needs needs you to move there for support. We have a pregnancy that maybe you didn't expect. You know, you want to take a job in a different part of the country. Nobody wants to, to have that option to, to, to move house taken away from them. And, you know, as property prices fall, that is effectively what happens to people with big mortgages. Right now, there are some buyers who really stretch themselves to get on the ladder. And some of them are those that have taken advantage of government schemes to help them do that. So help to buy and also shared owners. The interesting thing about that is that some of them, as part of the the way those schemes are set up, they had to stretch themselves as further as they possibly could to get on those schemes and had to buy at the highest potential uh, investment they could make. And that means they're very exposed now as as uh, mortgage costs go up. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had help to buy these two two distinct policies. So you had help to buy first in, in sort of 2013, which was this great George Osborne wheeze to kind of get the economy moving by by encouraging people to, to buy and sell houses. I always thought, and not just me, but lots of economists and commentators on it would, would say, you're not thinking about, you're doing this in a low interest rate environment, but just not thinking about what happens to these buyers when rates go up and that will inevitably happen at some point had to go up from zero <laughs> exactly they were they were practically flat and so at some that is only going to get more expensive the cost of servicing that mortgage is only going to be be higher um in 10 years than it was at the time that people took it on but i just feel like that was something that policymakers were ignoring and worse than that were encouraging buyers to ignore as well Sometimes people are quite scathing of the choices that first time buyers made. Sort of like, why didn't you think about interest rates being a factor? Why did you make what was, you know, now looks like quite a poor economic decision? But it's either that or try and survive in a rental market where you're, you're kind of being constantly bled dry by landlords and have no housing security whatsoever. So people, especially when it's a government backed scheme, people I think are very vulnerable to being nudged onto it and just assuming that things are going to be fine. I think with shared ownership in particular, which is a slightly different scheme, that's where you, you rent a portion of the equity and you buy a portion of the equity um, and that reduces the sort of initial cost of the deposit and also the, the monthly payments that you have to make. There was actually a specific government rule, a calculator. You had to spend, I think it was 40% of your household income on the cost of the housing. Otherwise, they would tell you to buy more. So if, if a house was on the market, for example, at 40% equity, but with 40% of your income, you could afford to buy 55%, then you were you were required to do that in order to get the property. That seems bonkers, doesn't it? Given the situation that we were heading into with the economy, of course, changing. With shared ownership, you will now see those, those interest rise, rises cause people's mortgage rates to increase. But the rental side of a shared ownership product is tied to RPI. So... 
that goes up as inflation rises. Yeah. It would, they, yeah. they were capped at 7% this year, but there's no guarantee that they'll be capped again next year. And the 7% rent rise is still pretty steep. And also shared owners pay service charges as the cost of and maintaining up, yeah, yeah, the cost of maintaining a property sort of general inflation will put those service charges up. There's some particular factors in a lot of shared ownership properties of blocks of flats and you, the sort of building safety stuff that's coming through. So on three counts, those shared owners are being put under financial pressure, um, but they were placed in that position by government rules. Yeah, they weren't allowed to opt to take a smaller portion. The government um, promises that have been extracted out of lenders a couple of weeks ago didn't include, as far as I saw, any special provision for people on help to buy or shared owners who are facing those unique circumstances. Why do you think they're just being overlooked? I think in the case of shared owners, they're still quite a niche part of the market. We talk about them quite a lot because I write about the social and affordable housing sector. Um, but but overall, when people think about you know how, how people with large mortgages will struggle in in an environment like this, they just kind of forget about shared ownership. It's a bit of an afterthought. I think just just an example of that. Um, a few years ago, when they introduced stamp duty cuts, they 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 just didn't put shared ownership in the legislation. So you had shared owners still paying stamp duty. And they're, they're by their nature, they, they, they are sort of lower income buyers, in, in, mm. at least in the field of people who buy, um, still paying tax, whereas people in higher incomes who could buy outright weren't. And I just think it gets forgotten and overlooked. But you could have a big problem here. And people will complain about the fact that they were sold these properties, were put under pressure, weren't necessarily explained, maybe even falsely advertised to. The Advertising Standards Agency has occasionally taken issue with the way shared ownership is marketed. And so I think it's one of those things where the government really should be getting a grip now. I mean, with help to buy, and it's slightly different. So, I mean, the government has a share of that. They, they, they guarantee people's right, mortgages. Yeah. They've, they've provided equity loans. So if people start losing money on help to buy deals, then the treasury immediately starts <laughs> to suffer. So Yeah, they notice. <laughs> yeah, you would, you would think that they should be thinking about that. mentioned you know, why do people take on these perhaps less affordable uh, products or riskier products it's partly because as you said private renting is so broken at the moment and people don't want to be constantly moved on moving every 12 months scared to ask you know for a repair and so on what does all of this mortgage crisis that we're in and the house price situation mean for private renters yeah it's a complicated one that and um i was actually having a few arguments with people on social media about that exact question just the other week which is always a productive way to spend time <laughs> lots of private landlords have buy to let mortgages which are interest only and that means that as rates rise their costs are going to rise sort of quite quite fast even compared to the rest yeah, of the mortgage rapidly. market yeah. yeah so now the question is do they pass that rent rise on to their tenants as they're perfectly legally able to do or not and th th there are lots of economists out there who will say no they won't because Private rents are set by the market, so they're already effectively charging as much as they can. There's not much headroom for them to go further and, and charge people more. And, you know, if they could, they would have done last year and taken a bigger, bigger um, profit margin. I disagree with that somewhat because I think that the private landlords, especially at the kind of lower level of, of kind of professionalism, 
won't necessarily be asking themselves difficult questions about what people can afford. They also, what people can afford is also a very kind of transient thing because what you can afford with your job is one thing, but what you can afford if you then start taking evening shifts as an Uber driver or, or, or you know, um, pawning your uh, family jewellery or, or cutting back on heating, which is something that we already know people do, is a different question. And so it, people will, will, will do extraordinary things to find an extra £200 a month to stop their family being evicted. And so I, I do think, I mean, it might not happen across the market, but I do think you will see private renters get sudden very sharp increases in their 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 rent because a private landlord has seen that corresponding increase in their mortgage payments. The other issue for private renters is that if the landlord can't afford to pay it, they might default on their loan and the bank might seek to repossess, which is a grounds for eviction. Or they might seek to sell anyway. Or so they might seek to sell, which is another reason why they would be evicting tenants. Or, or and, and equally... You, as as the cost of you know that this becomes less and less of a sort of guaranteed pension, you see fewer and fewer private landlords wanting to come into the market, and that means that mm-hmm. as they're evicted, there are fewer options for them to move mm-hmm. on to. You you see that the situation kind of is rapidly worsening for people who are who are, who are renting privately. I mean, I would say that there maybe a few of our younger or perhaps not even so young listeners um, might actually be quite excited about the idea of a house price crash for obvious reasons. You know, finally, maybe their chance to get on the ladder Um, economically and for, you know, housing options in general. Are they right to hope for that or is it a bit of a catch 22? Yeah, I'm afraid it's the catch 22 one because like fundamentally for the i think even for the uk economy to be sustainable and certainly for the the housing market to be less insane property prices do need to come down over time mm. but that's different from property prices crashing the sort of things that then flow through the economy as a result of that um you know just talked about private renters getting evicted struggling to find other homes you also see house building kind of grind to a halt and then you you, there's huge amounts of industries that are linked to people buying and selling houses from kind of like furniture stores through to Mm. mortgage brokers all of whom will kind of be shedding staff and 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 their incomes will be falling and this tends to kind of push us into a recessionary environment and that means that if you're a young person in a kind of you're, you're at the bottom of the food chain in whatever industry you work in. You're in a, yeah, a job that's quite and, yeah. precarious. You know, you and I have worked as journalists through a recession and the, often the result of that is a redundancy notice. Oh, yeah. The government certainly last time sort of reacted to a temporary fall in property prices by bringing in a whole load of property, a whole load of rules, which then made property prices first of all soar again. But then also you had these kind of restrictions on who banks could lend to which after that make it harder for people to get onto the ladder. It's unlikely to be, hey, we we wipe £200,000 off the the, the price of the average property so you can now afford it and you've still got the money in your back pocket and the employment and the job to to, to do that, unfortunately. What about social housing? Because a lot of people, I think, are interested in social housing. There's a real sort of clamour now for building more homes, which is another thing that's quite new. I don't think I've you know, heard as much of in the years that I've been covering this. Do you think politically a house price drop makes building social housing more palatable to voters? Because it's connected to that, you know, your chances sort of thing. Yeah. It's interesting because I, 
I sort of think, and I might be wrong about this, I might have sort of tunnel vision for it because of the area I work in, but I think there is polling that suggests building social housing is always kind of palatable with voters, certainly compared to, to, to lots of other house building initiatives, which tend to be quite unpopular with a certain type of voters. When you say it's social rent, actually people kind of go, yeah, I think the government should be doing a bit more of that. I think what changes when we get into a recession is that it suddenly becomes more attractive to the Treasury and to politicians who kind of, rather than seeing it as just a cost on a balance sheet, they see it as probably the only lever they can pull to keep the house building market going. And also to, to kind of suddenly they, the, the, these sort of easy comments about how well people should just be finding finding better play, paid work and, and housing themselves through the market just become a lot less politically palatable when... Total nonsense. <laughs> it's completely impossible. So, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, I think that, you know, the government's... Economically, the government would be well served by building social housing all the time. But though that case becomes much easier to make to sort of dogmatic Treasury officials during a recession than kind of at any other point. Yeah. So you, I think you probably will. And also you have things like not just building, and we've actually already started to see this. If a private builder builds a block of not necessarily luxury, but, but market-facing flats and can't sell them, right. what yeah. happens to them? Either they stand empty or somebody, a, a council or a social housing provider comes in and takes them off their hands for less money. But then you've increased the amount of social housing stock. So I think we saw... 100 homes built by Barra in a, an area of East London called East Ham, where you would kind of think as a house builder would be making money by selling houses, were sold to Newham Council effectively to be used as council yeah. housing. And you, you will see more things like that happening. I mean, I, I'd like to see if private landlords are really going to leave the market in, in big numbers. In Scotland, they're, they're working on ways to, rather than have that private landlord just sell to the highest bidder, to have them sell to a social housing provider and take yeah, that. Yeah, sort of a right of refusal sort of thing. They've, they've got trialling something like that in Lambeth with former right-to-buy properties that were sold to landlords, now trying to, you know, council's trying to get them back, which is an interesting one to, to watch. Do you think that Labour has provided any real alternative to the Tories on housing at the moment, or are we not hearing enough? They've kind of zigzagged on it, because at a party conference last year they made quite a big pledge um, they said that they would re- return social rented housing to be the second biggest tenure in the UK, which would involve making up a difference of about 300,000 on private rent. I spoke to a Labour source last week who said that's very much still their policy, but their their kind of headline announcements are all about building more for the private sector, kind of changing planning, bringing back in planning laws yeah. to, to get... Um, ultimately making it easier to buy your own home. Yeah, right, mortgage guarantees and yeah. so on. And they're really not... The, the only thing that Lisa and Andy said about social housing in her, re- her conference speech last week was that she supports the right to buy, which is something that will take away social housing stock. It kind of remains to be seen whether they just think for political reasons they, they should be talking about home ownership now but they still kind of believe in social housing in the background. You know, certainly a Labour Party should be less ideologically opposed to this over their history than a Conservative Party, but it's certainly not something they're making a big point of talking about, which is a shame. Yeah, it's a wait-and-see moment. (laughs) Wait and see how it unravels. So almost every election that I've worked on since 2005 was the first one I was working uh, someone says that housing is going to be the decisive subject. <laughs> Do you think that finally next year 
you know, whether it's the house price crash, whether it's the state of the rental sector or whatever, housing will be the defining issue. Or is it is that still wishful thinking from people like me? It's tricky, isn't it? Because Keir Starmer's five pledges have none on housing. Rishi Sunak's five men- missions have none on housing. It really should be. I mean, it, it should have always been, if you listen to people like me and you, but like you say, with the, the place we will probably be in by 2024, I can't think of many issues that will affect more people more directly who who will be desperately wanting the government to do sort of something and anything to make it better. But I think part of the problem is political parties don't necessarily feel like they have good levers to pull. They don't have good manifesto pledges to make. And therefore, they kind of shy away from making it the big issue because they'd rather just kick the opposition for something or say something that's a neater soundbite, whereas all of the answers to housing feel quite complicated. So we'll see. I, I, I think it should be. I think it should be lobbied for. I think people should make it clear to the politicians that they speak to that they want this this problem to be front and centre. But that was the case in 2017 and 2019 as well. And it, it didn't really make a ripple in the way that it should have no. done. Definitely didn't. Listeners, if you're you're hearing that, make sure you tell your MP that it's housing, housing, housing that you want this time round. Thanks so much for joining me, Pete. You're welcome, Anna. Thanks for the invite. Pete's book about the Grenfell fire, Show Me the Bodies, which won the Orwell Prize this year, is published by One World and is available in paperback now. If you enjoy this podcast, remember that you can back us on Patreon to keep us bringing you new episodes each morning. There's a link in the subscriber page in the show notes or just search for The Bunker on Patreon.com. Sign up and you'll get the show without ads, plus loads of other free goodies. I'm Hannah Fern. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Hannah Fern. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese, Private Renter. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Katie Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.